welcome back to episode 34 of the Service Design Podcast. Recently, we held another arena event, this time on the topic of the future of work. We had two interesting speakers, Julianne Coughlin, who you've heard on the show before, talking about transformation in Cork County Council, and we heard Alina Ermans from McKinsey Design, and she speaks about humanizing jobs. This episode starts off with a roundtable with our two guests, but keep listening to hear both their full talks. We posted the slides on servicedesignpodcast.com. Enjoy. Good evening, everybody. <laughs> I'm David Morgan. I'm uh, one of the hosts, together with Stina, of the Service Design Podcast, and we'll be uh, recording a little bit for the uh, podcast today. We're having a little roundtable with you two. Thank you for your very interesting talks just now. Stina and I will be asking a few questions, and then we'll open up the floor as well to the audience. So get your questions ready and uh, ask away uh, in a bit. First of all, uh, Julianne, one thing uh, that came back a few times in your talk was uh, preconceived assumptions. I I'm noticed I have them myself. I expect that, uh, for instance, in public services, I expect that change is harder to realize. Do you think that is actually true, that it's harder in a public sector to create change than in the private sector? I think it's probably true but not because there's a difference between the people who work in the public sector necessarily or the, or the people who work in the private sector. As I said, I think it's really down to the way that the public sector is organized and the fact that certainly in Ireland, I don't know if it's the same here, but it's, it's full of lots of legacy systems, services, structures, all of those things that we're kind of struggling a bit to break free from. So it's not so much that once you do allow that to happen and once you do give people an, a chance really to work differently, to think differently, to collaborate in new ways and to kind of, I suppose, going back to that word silos again, but really to move outside of the silos that they're in. I don't think then it's really any different because people, certainly public or private sector, really do want change. That's been our experience anyway. You, Aileen, do you uh, see any difference in, in creating and driving change in public sector versus the private sector? It's hard to tell. I think there's a lot of differences between public and private anyway. I think it's hard to pigeonhole it. I think, I guess, like, it depends a bit on the industries within public sector, but the private sector already had, has this notion around the customers more and, like, how do we serve well? So it's very fairly easy to make that transition. So what you did at Cork is that you actually uh, made a separate part of the organization. So you, together with, I think, four or five colleagues, you started the Service Republic. And I was wondering if that is like the way to go to also in a big organization to set up a new cell and then organize yourselves first and then see how you can help everyone. Or could you also change from the structure of the organization that you already have what is your uh, opinion about that yeah i mean i think 
it probably it worked well for us in that having a small focus team at the beginning uh, just allowed us to demonstrate that we could deliver results and that that's important from the management point of view so you know they weren't really willing to let the entire organization go off and try a completely new approach to delivering services without at least having tested or experimented on a, on a smaller scale. So certainly the the core unit, the small team at the beginning, just really focused and, and testing and learning the, I suppose, the process of service design. And then the team itself being able to expand that within the organization. So, I mean, what we're doing and the reason that I mentioned the people I mentioned in the, in the presentation is that we're really looking to build champions of change across the organization in all areas and to recognize them. And, and that's, I suppose, how it's going to, to spread. So that model and that approach certainly worked very well for us. Yeah, you talked about enabling them, but how are you doing that? Are you giving trainings? Are you putting them on a stage? How are you the, enabling them to do this? Uh, in, in a very simple way, I suppose, what we're doing is when we're working on a service, we're, we're all the time with the staff that are in the service, looking for those people that are really, really, I suppose, stand out as regards having the right, as I said, attitude, which is what service design is really about. And then making them part of our team so kind of bringing them into the structure of our team with us so that they have this new way to work and this new space to work in for a while so it's giving them a chance to work outside their normal routine or their normal structure and come in with us and then learn from the things that we're doing but as much as they're learning from what we're doing we're kind of learning from them too about how they're delivering services and what it's like in their part of the organization so there's a kind of a two-way exchange of of knowledge really in that sort of model can I just add to that? Because I really recognize that in your talk. I've done work in banking where it's kind of similar, right? So to really find those evangelists, because a lot of people that are having direct contact with customers are all not always recognized. So somewhere down the line, there's people uh, like the pothole <laughs> fillers. I don't know how their official function is. But, um, you know, it's very, very typical that they're kind of forgotten. And there's not all of them, but there is a few of those heroes that need to have a platform. So whatever that platform is, whether that's uh, making a film to sort of spread the word and to let them show how they do their, their work, it's very inspiring for people to see. It's really real. I recognize that a lot in your talk. We've been talking about, or everyone has been talking about silos, and we're always talking about how we should break them down. Do you think organizations in the future will not have silos anymore? And don't have different uh, departments or how do you think that will evolve? I, I suppose uh, I, just from the public sector point of view, I think um, we definitely have to look at a completely new structure for how we work in, in the public sector. Um, and that is going to be a slow and very painful process <laughs> for a lot of us, but it, it really does have to happen. Um, even if you look at the, re the reason I suppose I mentioned that manufacturing report uh, that that digital champions one. Um, it actually isn't really about digital at all, which is what you were saying in your presentations. It's really about um, integration and bringing all of those different elements of your of your work in the environment together with people actually enabling everything. So um, I think eventually that's the sort of way that all organisations are going to to move to. It's just it's likely, I think, to take a bit longer in the public sector. <laughs> 
<clears throat> question for you, uh, Eileen. Um, you are, yeah, as an agency, helping other organizations get ready for yeah, the future of work. Um, but you're in a large agency yourself. How, how did, does an agency like you go about uh, keeping yourselves ready uh, yeah. for change? That's a very good question. Um, so um, I think it's, there's a trend in like service design or like design companies getting bought by uh, bigger consultancies, like what happened with us. Um, and suddenly you're part of this big organization. So I think it's really easy um, because like, I guess that design design agencies tend to be a little bit more fluffy and, they have things as <laughs> uh, they haven't really put things written down. So it's really, it's really important to stand ground because, um, the kind of, the sort of unwritten structures, let's say, are really important to sort of, um, uh, voice in order to learn from that. Um, so what we are thinking of doing, we haven't really actualized that yet. Um, but is to think, okay, you know, we need to, when we talk about employee experience, all great and all, but like, it's not that we're perfect, right? So how can we make sure that we find a ways of how can we actually improve employee experience? Well, that's kind of prototyping your own employee experience, right? So we're really working on like, how can we make sure that we, that we get on top of our game? And that's just doing like, it's something that you mentioned. It's just like, not all like thinking and analyzing about it and trying to hope that you get the right client for doing certain stuff. No, I think it's, it's very powerful to say, okay, you know, you're not perfect. So let's just prototype this. And, and, and learn. Um, you have something uh, to say about this as well. How do you keep Service Republic uh, evolving? Yeah, I suppose um, like that, it is, it is a, almost like a continuous um, loop. Once, once, you, once you apply service design and once you really get involved with the people in your organization, um, you find that the more you think you know, the more you need to know really about how all of that process works. Um, and we are kind of learning and evolving all of the time and looking beyond, I suppose, even the initial kind of service design approaches to other types of innovation because um, it, is, it isn't really about the process and that you're using. Um, the advantage with service design, of course, is that it's so people-oriented and people-focused. But it really is about just learning from the people in your organization and actually understanding that even the guys who do fill the potholes <laughs> have something to, to, to tell you, you know, and have, have a lesson you can learn from. So, uh, it is about just, it's about personal transformation as well, because I know from my own point of view, I, my job has changed radically over the last couple of years and it's just become very fulfilling and very satisfying. And that's true being able to work with people in the organization. So once you start along that road, you're kind of always eager for more of that. So I think that's how it kind of keeps keeps going. Great, thanks. Are there some questions uh, in the audience? Yes, I will. Oh, okay. What's your name first? Um, my name is Boris. So I have a question for Eileen. You started your presentation with a prophecy in five years, 50% of uh, the workforce will be replaced by AI. Uh, my question is twofold. So A, do you think it will really go that fast? And B, uh, what's the future for that other 50%? Um, so 
it's not 50% of the workforce, but the workload that has been taking over, right? So, um, so you know, it's an hypothesis, right? It's, it's always with predictions. I guess there's many different types of predictions out there. But um, I do think that it's going fast. But it's tasks that we probably don't want to do, right? So it's up to us to make sure that it's uh, that it goes into the right direction. So, sorry, what was your second uh, part of your question? Um, what's the future for the other fifty percent? So people will lose their jobs. We will need to reschool people. Take a truck driver, for example. I think it's mm -hmm. something will be replaced very soon. So. Mm. It will be replaced very soon, but um, I mean, I, I, I think this, for instance, with truck drivers, I think it's interesting. You can currently, I think only auto autonomous uh, trucks are only in secured uh, locations, right? So for instance, in mining that where they are, um, where they are completely autonomous, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be challenging for for older people for the older sort of notion of what a truck driver should do. I think, and then this is where there is also a lot of speculation of what is the future. Um, you know, driver. It's not a driver, but how will that be managed? But yeah, I don't know what will will happen. I think it's gonna be interesting to see. Um, I don't have a clear answer on that. Any more questions? Yeah. Hello, uh, Matteo. Again, a question for Eileen. Uh, how do you manage uh, change in bigger companies where you often have uh, two types of population, one more resistant, afraid for, uh, afraid for change, and others who are more open to it? I never thought about it in that, <laughs> in that way. Uh, I think, I mean, it is like picking the people. It's kind of coming back to so how do you start a project, right? So we often tend to start the same way when it comes to bigger companies where uh, you start with a core team and you, you pick very carefully. So you pick the people in different types of departments that can, will create impact and will be able to, to bring others along uh, and win the hearts of their, of their peers. Uh, and then it's about scaling that, right? So they do the leg, much of the legwork and much of the thinking of how to do that. And it's really important to think about um, uh, governance. So when picking these people, it needs, you need to think about that, but also during the project, like how does that involve? Like how do we make sure that we have a clear governance model uh, uh, behind what we're trying to drive here. And I also think another thing that is important is to, what we said was starting small. So sometimes we do this, this huge research and we have all of these opportunity areas with all of these ideas that are even more ideas, but then we try to really pinpoint, okay, how do we make sure that we find the right things to prototype? And with that comes that we can um, we can we can be very narrow in what we prototype and use that kind of as a pilot of the capability building. So once you've started one pilot of making an idea real with testing with customers, then it's kind of easy to to win the hearts of the people that are uh, that are a little bit more old fashioned in say in a bit more stuck. And I think sometimes what I've seen is that those that are very conservative in the beginning will suddenly become your ambassadors. Once they, it's kind of, it's not, for me, it doesn't feel like a very graduate 
uh, process for those people. It's like a, it's like flipping a coin, and that's always very interesting. And if I may interject, uh, I'm thinking about something you said, Julianne, about uh, um, this group of people who are resistant to change might actually not be as big as you think. Mm. Right? And uh, I thought that was very optimistic in, uh, <laughs> in your talk that uh, perhaps there's fewer than we think of these well, people. If you can be optimistic in the public sector, you can be optimistic anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And also Any I more? think it's actually... Every one of us is resistant to change. That's just the way we are built as humans. But it's a matter of seeing and showing potential. And then people find it a logical way to move towards something. And it's not uh, yeah. seen as, I have to change. It's just... Yeah. Can I just say, I th to build on this, I think for me, the challenge is not the conservative people. I think the people that are a challenge are the ones that are emotionally not committed or engaged. So it's the people that are somewhat in between and don't really care that's the hardest part because those people you you kind of want to shake them <laughs> you're like come on have a reaction on this and that's harder for me personally than the people that are conservative and they have an opinion and they have maybe a lot of power we have time for at least another question yes let me walk to you I think I've got a challenge which applies to service designers in general, but in this case, specifically, if we're in the position to design ex uh, employee experience, the future of work. So for the people who are left in work and whose job has not been removed by robots or automation, they will be doing work where things like artificial intelligence and robotics support them. As service designers who are not comfortable at the moment working with AI, working with robotics, how do we get the skills so we can design that employee experience? That's, it's not a comfort zone of the, of the typical service designer today. So how can we design the future of work when it gets so technically complex? <laughs> that's that's well, a really is. interesting question. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think... I, I really can't answer from a technical point of view, but what I what I will say is I think the future of work in that sense will be about really kind of maybe redefining exactly what work is all about and finding um, what people value in their work because I suppose, and that, that comes to actually getting people engaged and getting people to, to work in new ways and um, it is about maybe taking a look at what the values that your workforce have, what, the, what those are, and how those fit with your changing working environment and finding a way to design around that. But I think you're coming at it again from the, really from the people point of view, more so than what the technology might be or what they might have to do. It's really about looking at what work actually means and what the purpose of your workplace overall is. And I suppose finding that match between those values of your workforce and what your actual objectives are as a as a company or an organization and i think that's a huge thing yeah i also don't have a straight answer <laughs> but i think it is key to stay people centric but i also agree that we can't really stay blind to whatever is that is happening so it's really key to work with with technologists closely to understand where does it, where can it go, uh, where can we go, but to be, have really uh, uh, strong ethical standards, uh, and to also understand when you work with a company, to understand what 
when are people ready for what, right? So the behavior is around it. And like, if you are not really talking about laying off people, what happens a lot with digital transformations and, and uh, AI and robots, like if it's more tasks and like, what are people really ready for and what makes their work really better? So looking at it from a holistic point of view and not like only the people part, but in the end, what is really creating value for society, right? So how do we make sure that we use AI's strongest uh, capabilities, what's out there, but also at the same time, e like equally and strongly value what makes humans thrive. Because right now I feel like the emphasis, emphasis is so much on the tech. We kind of forget about it. We're kind of like getting this tunnel vision and that is really dangerous. Great, thank you. If you have more questions, then you're welcome to uh, ask the speakers afterwards. We are moving to our final act of the evening, so please stick around, have a drink, have a chat with the speakers or with uh, the other peers you see here. And uh, thank you all for coming, and uh, we hope you to see you again in somewhere in October. We will uh, launch the date of the next uh, edition soon. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Um, it's great to be here in Ghent. Never been here before, so I'm staying an extra few days so I can really enjoy the, the towns. But it looks like we actually brought the sun with us from Ireland, which is unbelievable. <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, transforming through people because uh, from the point of view of Cork County Council, I think we're transforming our workplace not really through technology, but through people and through how we engage people and work with staff. And certainly service design for us has been a very uh, important tool and a very important mechanism to make that happen. So um, Stina kind of introduced me already, but for those of you who don't know, um, I'm a service design manager and I lead a service transformation team in, in Cork County Council. The name of the team is Service Republic. So we kind of set ourselves up as a unit and we branded ourselves. But we work, uh, we're employees of Cork County Council and we work in Cork County Council. And really our responsibility is to look at transforming services right across the organization. So I can't uh, talk without obviously taking the opportunity to tell you a little bit, not just about my team, but a bit about Cork because, and I'm sorry, because I do talk really fast, but people from Cork really do talk fast. So my friend Joanna is here and her job is to slow me down <laughs> as we go. Um, so um, a little bit about Cork first, for people who don't know. Um, so Cork's in Ireland and the map in the middle is pretty much all you need to know about the map of Ireland, as far as people from Cork are concerned. Um, other things in the picture here are things in Ireland. It's the biggest county in Ireland. Uh, we have about 12,000 kilometers of roads. We have 20% of the coastline, actually, even though it doesn't really look like it there, but there, there's a lot of peninsulas, so that the length of coastline is really huge. So we're the second largest local authority after Dublin City Council. So we have a big challenge delivering services across such a vast uh, area. Another thing about Cork is that we're, we're known as the Rebel County. And the reason that I'm going to mention that is... Some of our sports teams are called the Rebels. And we kind of have a natural rebellious spirit in the south of the country. Um, that kind of lends itself well, I think, to not just adapting to change, but also driving change. So it's not surprising, really, that Cork County Council is the first local authority to introduce a service design unit. 
you might like some of the things in this picture, you might not like some of them as well, so move on. So the timeline, I suppose, we started way back in 2015 and we surveyed customers about, <coughs> sorry, about the services that we were providing and asked them what they thought. And out of that, we realized we needed to redesign and uh, deliver services differently. So we were formed properly as a team in May in 2017. So we're not around that long, but we've done quite a bit. I suppose I want to share a few insights with you really about what service design has meant for us. And service design, um, apart from looking at transformation in our organization for a long time, and we were using things like BPI and Lean Six Sigma all the way back to kind of 2008, but service design is different. Service design is an attitude. And that's the main thing I think that separates it from other um, methods of transformation is that it's so people-centered. And if you put the right people in a service transformation role with the right skills and tools, you have really a, a winning combination. So that's kind of the number one insight from our point of view. We started doing a little research. We knew we wanted to change things in our organization, but we needed to know what we needed to change. And we did a big survey. We asked people out in the public what they thought of us as an organization. There was lots of really interesting insights that came back from that survey, but probably the most interesting one was that about 70% of our customers thought we were actually okay. So we weren't expecting that. <laughs> and then equally, we asked our staff, what they thought people would say about us. And about 70% of our staff thought the public would think we were just, you know, not a great organization. So there was a real disparity between what people thought inside the organization and what the public were saying about us. So that was a really interesting insight. Um, something else, I suppose, is that... Sorry, no. Yeah. So other things that... Uh, I suppose, came to the fore, things you might guess. People wanted better access to services. They wanted better communication from us during service um, delivery. And there was an opportunity as well for online services. So when we formed our team back in 2016, which was when we initially got together, we gave ourselves the focus of delivering online services. And that was kind of a tangible thing we were going to do. We were going to design them with people in our organization. And we thought okay, we were a bit cynical going in. People wouldn't buy into this, surely. They wouldn't actually come on this journey with us. Um, because after all, public sector workers are usually considered to be lazy and you know, averse to change. We had all of these kind of preconceived ideas in our head. Weren't we kind of working in an organization really where the culture was resistant to change? So... When we say that the culture of our organization is resistant to change, normally in the public sector, what we kind of think of is, again, a worker sitting in an office with their feet up on the desk, probably reading the newspaper. So it's, it's kind of the people, I think, we think are averse to change. But actually, using service design and working uh, with people in our organization, we realized that was actually the opposite. People want to change, and they were happy to have us work uh, with them on it. So that was a real surprise for us. People want to change. And when we went out and spoke to staff, they want to change. They wanted us to change services to make them better for customers. So what's this culture that's averse to change we keep hearing about? 
Well, I think in the public sector in general, the main thing um, as regards culture and things that make change difficult are actually that we have really old services. We have services that have evolved over a long period of time and they're not really fit for purpose anymore. But our staff are still working with those services and trying their best to actually get uh, results for people in those services. And we also have hierarchies. We have hierarchies, our structure is very hierarchical and it keeps people in silos. Not just people in silos, it keeps information in silos as well. So, thinking about service design and putting people in the centre, we realised using this process and working with them that people really are not the problem in our organisations. People are actually the answer in our organisations. So that's another big insight I just want to share. So the other thing we have to think about is these silos and we need to integrate our staff. We have to remember that when we put a system or a service together, it's not in isolation. Services, technology, people, they don't exist in isolation in our organizations. Service ecosystems are really, really complex. So we have to remember that people and how they interact with each other are at the heart of all of these systems. So integration and interaction is a key thing. Future trends. So we should look beyond our own sectors as well and look at other things that are happening across the globe. And I've, I came across this really, really interesting report actually from PwC. <coughs> Sorry, this is terrible. Okay, this report was done on the manufacturing sector. And PwC were looking at digital champions in the manufacturing sector. What makes a digital champion? And I thought that was, this was kind of an interesting concept. <coughs> so one of the things that they discovered was that digital champions typically, and these are mostly countries or companies in Asia in the manufacturing sectors, they integrate the different ecosystems in their organization. So they integrate customer solutions, operations, technology, and people. All of those ecosystems are integrated. And I thought, this is something we really need to learn in the public sector. But how do we actually start that integration? They also discovered that people, the people ecosystem, is the one that enables all of those others. So where do we start? Well, you need to create the conditions, really, for a transformation to happen. And you start by laying the groundwork for innovation in your organization. So you don't necessarily think of your end product, but you start by laying the groundwork. And you do that from the people perspective. That's what we did in Cork County Council, and that's what worked so well for us. So how do we do that? Well, we asked a few questions um, from the perspective of people in the organization. We asked, what support do people actually need to make things change in, their, in our organization? What, and by support, we meant what capacity and resources do people need? And where can we remove obstacles to people actually being innovative and creative in our organization? And the way to do that is obviously to have support at the top of your organization. And then how can space be made for change to happen? 
So how can we just give people sometimes the space to actually try things differently? Because a lot of time with innovation, it's not necessarily about um, doing something. It's about getting out of the way of something and allowing things to happen. So one of the things that we did, as well as, I suppose, adopting this sort of philosophy in Cork County Council to change and to innovation, was that we digitized services, okay? So we digitized services right at the very beginning when we formed our team. And we did it, sometimes we, did, we designed the services with the staff and customers, but sometimes we actually took the services as they were, manual, really paper-based, and digitized them. And there was actually real power in doing that. And some of the reasons were people were running around the place with reams of paper just stacked on their desks. Files were being posted all around the county. So digitization immediately allowed us to automate the more manual processes and to give people you know, immediate results and savings to allow them to retrieve records really easily and to allow us to do kind of business intelligence and reporting on data that was coming in. So sometimes digital for its own sake is actually a benefit and you have to realize that and recognize that. That was certainly the case in Cork County Council. So I suppose digital became a kind of an innovation Trojan horse for us in the sense that when we digitize the service and we introduced that change for our staff and for our customers, that change in itself kind of gave people an appetite for other changes, changes to uh, things that had nothing to do with technology. So digitization kind of gave us a way into the department and a way into people's psychology, I suppose, in the sense that it allowed them to be comfortable with change and change to their service area. So that was digitization for us. I suppose what you have to think about is in your own organization, uh, you need to find your own innovation Trojan horse. And it's not necessarily a digitization, but it could be something similar. So we ended up, I suppose, with a portal. That was our very practical deliverable to start with, our yourcouncil.ie site, where we have a lot of online services. And we've certainly met all of the requirements from the customer's point of view that were um, looked for in that initial perception survey. These are just some of the results. But I suppose what, I, what I'm getting at with, with this slide really is that we've delivered some of these things, but we haven't delivered them. The people in our organization have delivered them and our customers have delivered them. So it's been a transformative process and it's been a transformation in the people in our organization and in the, in the way that we interact with our customers. And that's how we've been successful. So in many ways, we've kind of discovered people who are willing to go above and beyond to deliver good services in our organization, and we've given them a means to do it. Our, and we've called these people our service rebels. Because of course, the rebel county and all that, we couldn't resist, basically. <laughs> so, what you need to think about is, do you have service rebels in your own organizations? And you probably do. People who are going above and beyond to deliver good services in circumstances maybe that are quite difficult for them a lot of the time. And I'm going to talk about a couple of these people because I think they really deserve the mention in relation to how we've transformed and innovated in Cork County Council. So this is James. I'm sure he... He doesn't know his photo is being used here. No, of course he does. Data protection and all that. Of course he does. But um, I'm sure he never thought he'd make his way to Ghent, to be honest with you. Uh, James is a litter warden, and he's in our environment department. 
And James kind of covers an area of the county that's about 2,000 square kilometers. So it's big. Um, James goes out, meets people who are, um, you know, called litter active in our communities. So they're people who kind of patrol their own organ their own areas and they collect litter and they contact James and he goes and collects. So he has a real relationship, those people in their in the areas. James kind of told us, just as an aside when we were talking to him about litter and dumping, that there's a litter number that people can phone in the council to report issues. But he gives people his own mobile number sometimes, especially older people, because they're often quite anxious about their own area and they're anxious about dumping. And if he thinks that there, there's a certain level of stress with them, he'll give them a means to actually contact him in person. So James is really displaying, I suppose, without even really knowing it, empathy for those people. And he understands that for them, the issue of dumping in their area is something that causes them a lot of stress. So he's really designing the service on the fly for those customers. And when we spoke to people in the community James works in, they actually couldn't have spoken more highly of him. They said he was unbelievably uh, personable uh, and did went over and above all of the time in the service he was delivering. And that's just James, the personal environment that we met. This is Norma. Norma's had a lot of mention, actually, at various events. So Norma is a Grade 3 officer in housing, and a Grade 3 in Cork County Council is the entry-level grade. So she's really, I suppose, if you were talking about that hierarchy, Norma's at the end of the hierarchy. When we went online with our portal, Norma came to us on her own initiative and said, I've got this service and it's driving me crazy. My desk is stacked full of paper from one end of the, the week to the other. She was handling uh, representations. So um, our politicians make representations through Norma about housing issues on behalf of their constituents. So if somebody wants to know where I am on a housing list when am I going to get my house? Sometimes they'll go to their local politician and their local politician will contact the council. And Norma was handling all of those requests. And that's from politicians in the Cork area, but also national level as well. So Norma had just requests coming in on back of cigarette boxes. If, um, if a councillor happened to meet somebody at a funeral, because councillors are great for going to funerals in Ireland, they'd show up at every funeral. <laughs> and they'd take representations from people there um, and Norma was swamped, so she, she just had a vision that we could do something better with that service. So with Norma, we actually met the politicians, the, the key offenders who were doing a lot of representing, and we brought them in to look at a service and design it with us. And it was the first time we'd, we'd ever actually sat down with our politicians and designed a service. And we weren't sure how they were going to take to it, but in actual fact, they were really delighted to be asked to, to be involved and they got really engaged with the whole process and now they make their own representations online so Norma's actually out of the loop as far as actually typing and entering in all that information is concerned and she actually phoned us one week to say uh, her desk was clear and she'd never had a clear desk since she started work <laughs> so we were delighted to hear that and she was really excited people in housing as well have told us that she's totally changed her her perspective when she comes in each day and her attitude to work is completely different. So there's been a transformation in Norma in us addressing that issue with her. Um, so I suppose even though that's just a small service, like we, we, have a, we have about 600 services in Cork County Council of varying scales that we provide, but housing representations is quite small. 
um, it just goes to show that, you know, small, we have to remember this sometimes when we're looking at transformation and innovation, small is really powerful. If you pick the right service, and if you get not only a transformation in the service, but if there's a transformation in the people around the service, that's really where it can have an impact. And that has made such a difference with the housing department that we've worked with them on a huge number of projects since, actually. And um, we went live two weeks ago with the housing repair service online, so tenants can actually go online and report their, you know, their faulty heating or shower or whatever. And we did that. We went out and spoke to tenants, and we went out and spoke to our contractors who are actually providing that service. But we'd never have been able to do that without that small first service with housing. So small is powerful. And you can limit the risk you take when you're trying to do something new if you pick the right small service. Limit the risk and kind of embed an appetite for change. And it can really allow you then to scale that up and escalate it out. Uh, Mark and Cliff are road workers. They actually go out filling potholes. So they're really busy. <laughs> There's loads of potholes in Cork. Um, and they're outdoor workers that we were asked to talk to about an intranet. So a kind of a, you know, a way that they could connect with the business of the organization and what was going on. And uh, before we met them, people in our own department, in, in our own personnel department, I can say that because there's no one here for personnel, <laughs> um, actually said, outdoor workers won't engage with this. They, they don't want to use technology. And we heard, so we heard all of the kind of preconceived ideas about what would or wouldn't happen with outdoor workers before we met these two guys. And um, they were the first outdoor workers we met. And when we met them, we found out that they were uh, using their own smartphones and they had maps. They were navigating to where issues were, even though we weren't providing them with any of that. They were doing this themselves. They were taking photos of the before before road and the after road. <laughs> and they were actually putting it on Twitter. We <laughs> didn't realize that either. So look at what we've done. And um, it was amazing. They got really incredible engagement from the local area with that too because you know it was kind of like thumbs up thanks for the work and all that and that was really validating for them so not only were they using technology but they were really innovating themselves and how they were using it and these were people that we were told you know they just they won't engage but again you you really need to go out there and meet these incredible people in your own organization and realize what power there is to change the other thing, I suppose, the obvious thing is that once you change anything, um, it's easier to change more things. So if you have any kind of reluctance about starting, just don't. You just need to start. It's kind of like pushing a car, if anyone's ever pushed a car. <laughs> once you start, it's not so hard. It's just getting started. So any, any change really drives more. And uh, that's an important lesson that we've learned over the last while, using service design and working with staff and working with the public. So um, in terms of kind of an overall summary of innovation and our innovation journey, I suppose the main thing to, to mention, and this is a theme I'm sure is going to come through this evening, is that um, people transform really and not technology. So it doesn't matter what the next big thing is that's out there. If you don't have people on board and if you don't find the right people and you don't work with them, you're not going to get transformation. Also, innovation is everywhere. We have some really funny ideas about what innovation can be. Um, I've read so many definitions of innovation at this stage, I still don't really know. I just know that when I see 
change. And when I see people doing amazing things in difficult circumstances, that's innovation to me. So I think it's everywhere. And I think the trick for us, especially in the public sector, is to kind of recognize it where it happens and then to find a way to nurture it. So to make it to, to make it a thing that it's easy for people to do, uh, to find a way to connect it up. So if you have it happening in different pockets of your organization, find a way to connect those things together because there's kind of strength in numbers as well. Um, enable it to be copied or expanded. So when you see something, uh, understand it enough so that you can replicate it and you can maybe scale it up. Um, and also very important to show the impact of what it does. So it's, it's fine, all these people out there working on their own and doing the best they can, but you need to find a way to bring the impact of what they're doing um, to, e to elevate that in your organization. You can do that with data. Data is really important in your services. Um, but also you actually need to find a way to give these people the credit and the kind of the kudos they should get for, for being innovative and for doing what they do. So I, I went to the service design and government event in Edinburgh this year and it was really interesting. I won't say any more. <laughs> no, uh, it was really interesting. There was um, a speaker there called Cormac Russell and he had this kind of new approach to um, innovating with communities that I hadn't heard of before. Some of you may have heard of this, but, but I think it's kind of worth mentioning because it's rung very true with what we're trying to do in Cork. So um, he had the idea that we often go out there with the, the notion of a problem that we're going to solve. And he said, you know, we should stop doing that sometimes. It's not always a good thing to have the, the idea that you need to deliver something. Go out there to your communities and meet people that are out there and actually find out what's strong in those areas. So you start with what's called asset mapping. So um, you go out there, you literally do an asset inventory of everything that's happening in your community. And you look then at ways of connecting, facilitating, enabling, empowering, all of those things and making those things happen more easily. So it's not actually about you as a local authority delivering something directly. It's about you enabling something new to happen. So that's start with what's wrong and not with what's wrong, which I think is a really nice idea. If anybody wants to just know a little bit more about this approach, it's called asset-based community development. And the reason I'm mentioning it now is it's probably something that we're definitely going to try in Cork County Council with our communities. And it's a new kind of an approach to innovation that we probably, again, we wouldn't have had the nerve to try this a few years ago, but because we're trying a few different things, and we've taken a leap and service design has been such a success for us. Um, we're going to try and go down this road and see where that leads. So it's just, it is some, another idea and it certainly fits very nicely with service design as a complementary approach. I suppose just to finish really, um, I was thinking about the theme of the future of work and I don't have, I don't have many answers, some answers, but I can just tell you what, what I think it means for us as a council, as a local authority. Um, I think it really is about our ability to transform ourselves because things are going to change so fast. And in the public sector, we're never going to keep pace with that change, really. But the people in our organizations need to be able to transform how they work in that sort of an environment. And then we need to kind of recognize innovation when it happens and integrate it. So support it and build on it. And very importantly, we need to build relationships and empathy. So 
that's not just for the service designers in our organization, that's for everyone in our organization. And uh, sometimes it's more important really to enable something to happen than it is to deliver it directly. That's another important lesson. And that, I think, is really it. So thank you very much. All right, before I start, I'll just say apologies for all the blue slides. I've seen so many nice, colorful slides. I work for McKinsey Design, and McKinsey is obsessed with blue. <laughs> don't tell me, and don't ask me why. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Humanizing the future of work. When we think of the future, uh, there's this slight uncomfortable feeling, and we don't feel really in control of what is happening. When we talk with leaders about the future of work, there's this slight uncertainty and there's this lack of control, and they don't really understand what, what it is. <laughs> and there's even some feelings of fear. The future of work is a very important topic for society, for public sector organizations, for education, for big companies and for small companies, and for all of us, I think, on an individual level. This feeling, these feelings of fear that people have, that leaders have, are of course not coming from anywhere. Most of the times it has to do with the feelings of that the robot's already here, ah, <laughs> and people are freaking out, right? So technology is having this rapid pace uh, in our world, and I think any kind of talk like this starts with, I need to put my trailer voice on, but like, <laughs> in a world that is rapidly changing. And this is kind of like, it sounds super corny, but it's kind of the truth, right? Um, so um, even though that is, is the truth, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a threat. Yes, that's what I wanted to say. So when it comes to the, the future of work, I think many people associate it with technology. But that's an interesting... Um, that's an interesting notion because there's something else that is much more interesting and I'm going to tell you why. But before I'm going to do that, I would like to all of you stand up. Some of you are already standing up. All right. Everyone standing up? Yes. Cool. All right. So let's just imagine that we are 100% of the workforce and we are 100% engaged at work. Now I want you, I'm just going to walk around. I just want you guys to sit down again. It's not super precise. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so roughly 50% is uh, sitting down again. 50% of the global, um, the, the global workload will be taken over by robots and AI in the next five years. That's huge. <laughs> But I want to have a look at something else. And it's not you personally that are going to be replaced, <laughs> so don't worry. It's more like tasks that are going to be replaced, right? So uh, not only simple tasks that we might think of, but also more smart tasks. So I don't know, sifting through legal documents or uh, looking for patterns. But I want to have a look at something else. I want, mm, this is really hard, math isn't really my best <laughs> my best skill but let's just say let's you guys sit down again 
So you're still standing up, congratulations, because <laughs> you're still engaged at work. So 70% of the global workforce is not engaged at work. 70%, roughly. And I believe that that is the real problem. So 72% actually are not engaged at work. So they're not energized. You can sit down again. Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> if you want to stay standing up, that's fine too. But it's a bit hard to see. <laughs> so a lot of people are not energized at work. They don't feel like they're contributing fully. They don't feel like they're serving a purpose. And this is the real problem. So every time I'm going by, uh, by tram to work, uh, I work in Stockholm, in the, the McKinsey Design Stockholm uh, office, and I'm always super crammed in a, in a tram, very uncomfortable. I think the Swedes around me are even more uncomfortable because Swedes like their space, I'll tell you. Um, and I look around and I wonder, like, how many of you have really, how many of you are really engaged? How many of you are stoked and and feel really energized to go to work. And I believe that this is really unacceptable. And this is the challenge. People are, are not engaged. We are, like, we are wasting human potential. We are wasting human time. And time is our most valuable currency that we possess as human beings. And this is not only bad for society or for the employees as individuals, but it's bad for productivity. And this is kind of like a duh moment, <laughs> but productivity goes down when people are not engaged at work. When the industrial revolution started, people were very anxious that their jobs would be taken away. And of course, tasks were taken away, but there were also theories, for instance, that we would have, I don't know, 15 hour work weeks and I don't know about you guys, but I am not having a 15-hour work week. <laughs> Mine is a little bit more, uh, a little more, more stacked with uh, working hours. So this is the challenge. We are doing a lot of, we are having a lot of tasks. We're still busy. So the industrial revolution started, and it did not take tasks away. Instead, we got other tasks to do. And there's this anthropologist from the U.S. His name is David Graeber. And um, he wrote a book about this, and it's called Bullshit Jobs. It's, I think, released last year. I'm not sure. But his theory is that... Um, you, sorry. You, oh, you have water. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, his theory with his, with his book Bullshit Jobs is that 50% of the jobs out there in the world are complete bullshit, so some, some jobs might be like partly bullshit <laughs> and 50% and, and will be is, is uh, at the moment complete bullshit. So we're doing jobs that are not creating real value for society. So think about that. That's just mind boggling for me. So we need to think as service designers or if we're in HR, in companies or we're leaders, we need to think about how are we going to recreate and redesign so that people are having meaning, meaningful jobs and are actually creating value for society. So currently, we are, we are always uh, talking about digitizing our organizations. <laughs> we already we heard a lot of digital uh, transformations and innovation. And of course, this is super necessary. 
all our companies need to be digi digital ready. However, I believe that we need to focus our gaze on humanizing our organizations. Because <laughs> uh, digital is like a commodity. So I uh, have the privilege as a researcher to work with a lot of youngsters, so young adults um, uh, and teenagers and children, and they are entering the workforce right now. So I'm talking about the Generation Z. And these people, for them, it's like the air they breathe. So <laughs> it's a commodity for them. For them, that's nothing new. When it comes to humanizing your organization, that is what, them, what makes them value you, and that is what makes you compete better with the people, with the companies around you. So it's extremely important to focus on how can we make humans thrive and make them uh, have a real impact in the, com in the company. So let's just take a step back, right? So humans are amazing. We're freaking awesome. And why are we awesome? And I think it's already said in the introduction, but we have skills that AI and robots have a really damn hard time to <laughs> replicate. And those things are, for instance, creativity, compassion, and critical thinking. Those are things that we possess as human beings, and we should really uh, develop that and really grow on those skills, because that is what's going to set us apart from what AI is, is doing and uh, robots are going to take over. So um, I work a lot in uh, education. So my last uh, assignment in education was in China, for instance. And this, uh, I don't know how many of you work in education, but uh, education is a very sluggish system. It's very slow. But even education, which for me is like a synonym to the future of work, even they realize that they shouldn't focus on the cognitive skills or the cognitive subjects, but instead have to think about these more softer, and then do this, because <laughs> that's really important, softer skills, which are creativity or critical thinking or compassion. And this is really important to develop. So not only for our children, but also with our peers. Like, how can we make sure that people develop these skills that will make them thrive as human beings? And that all sounds extremely easy when I, when I say this and I blabber this in a microphone. But of course, this is really hard. And we see a lot of barriers. And the three most important ones uh, that holds us back from humanization. Oh, I have a clicker. OK, wait. <laughs> that makes things so much easier. All right, I think I know how it works. Um, so the first one is complacency silos. And what this means, and we heard this word already, silos, is that we are, we are kind of comfortable in our little silo, in our little bucket, and we think that everything is kind of all right. So instead of, um, of looking a, a, a little bit bigger, we're kind of comfortable in our silo, whether that's a department or that's you as an individual or you as a company in a more complex problem. I think I should touch this. Yes, okay. Sorry, I'm obviously not so tech first. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, more interesting projects that we've done is the Singapore government. Um, we've worked with them on uh, improving the quality of life with people with disabilities. And this was extremely interesting because as you can imagine, 
working with this type of topic, a lot of stakeholders are involved. So I'm talking about parts of the government, uh, companies, uh, social care, healthcare, and all of these stakeholders we brought into one room to workshop with and to create real impact for those people. So we did a lot of design thinking with them and we created a lot of opportunity areas and a lot of ideas with them. But before we did that, we created documentary, um, we created, we created documentaries about each and every single person that we, um, that we met uh, f uh, through our research. So we spent a lot of time working with um, people with disabilities to really understand what their kind of struggles they had, what kind of um, highlights they had on the day. But it was a lot of work into trying to understand what makes them tick, what motivates them to, to continue in, in every single day. And we created these empathy documentaries. So we felt that instead of making a compilation, which sometimes works, right? So sometimes you, you're trying to craft your insights and you edit this type of video to create empathy. We felt that each and every single individual that we met deserved a, a, a documentary. So we did that. And uh, I must say, it's really hard to watch because a lot of people struggle with uh, if they have a disability in Singapore. And with that, we really touch the hearts of people. So there's this internal change happening. And when they are in the room together, and they no normally don't, um, so the stakeholders that we brought together in one room, they never meet each other. And suddenly they're all touched. They all have a connection with the same thing and they really are aligned. So it's extremely powerful to use empathy in order to create change and to break down barriers. Someone that, that I really admire and am really inspired by is Greta Thunberg, and I'm sure you've heard about her. But uh, she is, she's, been, she's been awesome with breaking silos, right? So silos from children and parents, education, politi politicians, uh, science, you name it. She kind of broke all, uh, broke all those barriers and those silos in order to really start a coalition and a community and, and a movement. And she is, of course, an extreme, but she stands for a generation that, is, that understands that they have a voice and they use all the tools around them to really share their voice. And they also are extremely hyper aware when it comes to uh, issues like environment or politic pol political issues or gender issues, you name it. And this is really key for this generation. The second barrier that I have is humans as assets. When we talk about human resources in a way that that term is flawed, we, we kind of disconnect that human, humans are people and they have needs that are also outside of work, per se. So they have a life, right? So when we talk about humans as assets or humans as resources, we tend to kind of disconnect with the needs that they really have. We worked with a global tech company and um, they had no idea <laughs> Well, how their employees were like how how they were doing um, from a, like a deeper level than the data that they had they didn't really understand what made them tick 
And so we were set out to do a really in-depth research, trying to understand, okay, what, what is it that makes people tick? What kind of needs do they have? What kind of profiles do you have in your organization? And how can we serve them better? So we found that the simple things, like how meetings were planned or how feedback was given, but also, for instance, how lunches were, that that created real change internally and really uh, created a better engagement. So a very practical example is that this company had a huge lunchroom. So everyone came at 12 sharp <laughs> to have lunch. And there were hundreds of people in the same lunchroom. So a lot of like, extroverts were really energized by that because there is a buzz and it's really fun and you see a lot of people and you, and you talk about any kind of things that you want to talk about. But for the introverts, however, this was really draining. So instead of being energized afterwards to do better job after lunch, they were completely drained with energy. So a simple thing we could change was doing, the, doing something around the lunches and to be more flexible in how we serve people when it comes to lunch. The third barrier, barrier is getting stuck. And I think, I don't know about you, but I think everyone can kind of relate to getting stuck, right? So we all have that on an individual level, but I think it also is on a company level or sometimes a department level that we get stuck. So we do a lot of work, we do the right things, but somewhere down the line, it doesn't go well. It doesn't really become a real change. And um, this is really interesting because we see, I see a lot of companies that have uh, done a lot of work, for instance, on the customer. So they do a lot of research. They do a lot of segmentations and customer journeys, you name it, all of those sort of things that we, we talk about, it's all checked off. But when it comes to actually creating real change, nothing really happens. So a lot of effort is put in something and people don't see actually this will change the reality. So that's, that is, of course, not very uh, motivating. Someone that is definitely not stuck <laughs> is Tanme Bakshi. Tanme is uh, a developer. He was five when he started developing. He was uh, 13 when he got himself into AI. I think he was seven when he started his YouTube channel being uh, sharing tutorials on how to code. And what is interesting with him is that he is a self-taught developer. So he did not need an education to actually becoming extremely successful. He's currently advising IBM and Google. And being 15 years old, that's pretty impressive. And he also stands for this generation that is breaking down these constructs that may have served people that are older like him, like education or certain hierarchies. But when it comes to him, it doesn't serve him and it doesn't serve his generation always. So when I talk to teenagers, uh, I've heard a lot where people say it's not worth the investment investment to go to a school and go to university because I'm spending a lot of time and effort and money on a university, but then what, right? So this generation is brought up with um, not their post 9-11, so they've only seen the recession and they've seen older peers, uh, people from my age, struggle with the recession and they realize that they have to break down those kind of constructs in order to succeed. 
So this is really interesting because we have certain constructs and they, and they serve us, but we need to think about how can we change uh, the environment that will serve them, right? To make it a little bit more practical. Um, Spotify is, is, I guess, used quite a lot in a lot of examples, and it's again a Swedish example, but okay. Um, Spotify has a learning and development team, and they are called the greenhouse team. And the greenhouse team is, sees themselves as gardeners, and they create, they are planting seeds, humans, <laughs> and they are developed and grown. So what they've done, in other words, is decentralizing the development, which means that everyone is responsible for their own learning. So they have this uh, awesome belief that they state, which is in order to stay ahead, we need to learn faster than the world around us. And then the world is changing. And I think that's really powerful because it kind of stands what, what, what the future of work is about for me. In order to stay ahead, we need to learn faster than the world is changing. So the shifts that we would like to see is um, from silos to coalition. So creating movements, creating a shared purpose and alignment. Instead of talking about humans as assets, talk about potential, talk about ambitions, where people want to be. St from stuck to flux, so have this lifelong learning mentality and to really be brave enough to constantly grow as a company but also as a person. And all of these things are things that we can do something on a short term as well as on a long term. To come back to people, we are amazing as human beings. We have skills that, uh, that AI and robots don't possess. We need to hone into those skills and to develop those in order to make us thrive and make us happy at work so that we can be productive. When I, when I talk to children like these, or they're older, they're teenagers, these people are really brilliant. And they might be young, but they're not foolish. And they are growing, they're um, maturing faster than generations uh, before them. So they're basically catching up. <laughs> and we need those skills, we need their capabilities and their knowledge in order for us to grow as companies. This is really key. So we don't only need to understand the needs of our current employees, but those of the future in order for us to have a sustainable growth. So I'm gonna be pretty straight with you. <laughs> um, you know, I want the companies that we work for to succeed. These people, these kids, teenagers and young adults, they're our future leaders. So whether you like it or not. So the question is, will they be working with you? So together, let's create the future that we want to work and live in. Thank you. The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, 
visit service-design-network.org and for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight by Hydrogen C, featuring I Will, I Swear. Until next time.